This episode of Ham Talk Live is brought to you by Tower Electronics. For cables, connectors, and more, call 920-435-2973 or visit pl-259.com. And buy the ham station. Get your new radio or antenna by calling 800-729-4373 or go to hamstation.com. It's Ham Radio. Good evening, everyone. It's time for Ham Talk Live. It's episode number 72, Making Kit Building Easy with Joe Eisenberg, K0NEB, recorded live on Thursday, July 6th, 2017. I'm your host, Neil Rapp, WB9VPG. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Ham Talk Live. Tonight, Joe's back. K0NEB, he's going to talk about uh, ways to make kit building easy and a couple of new kits that are out there since he joined us last. So we'll uh, let him talk about those. And later on in the show, we'll let you know when it's time and we will take your calls. So if you have any kit building questions, uh, please uh, save those for us and call in during the the call-in segment later on, or you can tweet those right now if you want to. Uh, On Twitter, we are at HamTalkLive, so you can uh, send us those, and we'll have those ready to go when we get to that part of the show. Uh, Last week, uh, Jim Wilson, K5ND, was here uh, talking about the National Boy Scout Jamboree, which is uh, just uh, about a week, week and a half away or so. Um, and then also uh, the Jamboree on the air and internet that's coming up in October. So uh, if you're interested in that, why head on over to hamtalklive.com and uh, check out that episode. Uh, you can do that anytime. And you can also get our podcast version uh, if you want to just download it and subscribe. Uh, you can do that on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Tune in and SoundCloud, and you can also subscribe on YouTube. So be sure to check us out and spread the word if you would. Uh, try to let people know that uh, that we're here every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, or if they can't catch it, why, they can get one of those podcasts. So I'll be back with Joe uh, in just a little bit, but uh, don't forget that telephone number. It's 812-NET-HAM-1. That's 812-638-4261, or you can just call us on Skype or Ham Talk Live on there. Or again, you can uh, give us a tweet at Ham Talk Live uh, with all of your kit building questions. So uh, I'll be back right after this word from the ham station right here on Ham Talk Live. <laughs> 
This episode of Ham Talk Live is brought to you by The Ham Station. For over 37 years, The Ham Station has sold new and used radios, antennas, accessories, and equipment to hams everywhere. Give Dan or Jeff a call at 800-729-4373 or order online at hamstation.com. Ham Station carries all the major brands like Icom, Yezu, and Kenwood, and they have a wide selection of of radio scanners, MFJ accessories, Heil Sound products, amplifiers by Mirage and Ameritron, Kushcraft antennas, and more. Easy online ordering is at hamstation.com or call 1-800-729-4373 to place an order and talk it over with the experts. The Ham Station, proud to sponsor this episode of Ham Talk Live. We're not sure what's up with the fifth dentist, but four out of five dentists recommend listening to Ham Talk Live. Welcome back to Ham Talk Live, the ham station. Give them a call at 92, or I'm sorry, 800-729, I just about gave you Scott's phone number. 800-729-4373 is the ham station or hamstation.com. Give Dan or Jeff a call. They've got uh, all kinds of uh, great Icom, Yezu, Kenwood, you name it. They've, they've got it down there and also some used equipment. So be sure to check out their list online hamstation.com and tell them you heard it on ham talk live and let them know that uh, you appreciate them supporting us and we're on the air every thursday night at 9 p.m eastern time at hamtalklive.com and uh, if you miss us live well you can always catch the archive or our podcast version joe eisenberg k0neb is here tonight from lincoln nebraska and is uh, well known for his kit building expertise and he's also well known for his picture shows of the Dayton Hamvention. He is the longtime kit building editor at CQ Magazine and often makes presentations and offers kit builds at ham fest conventions and club meetings. And Joe started uh, ham radio at an early age and has been licensed since 1969. And uh, the other way that he's known is his famous Dr. Seuss hat that he only wears to Dayton. So. Joe, uh, thank you, uh, as always, for coming on the show and uh, catching us up on some kit building. Right, Neil. And and there's actually an exception to the rule on the hat. I wore it at Friedrichshafen. And, boy, oh, the, the German wow. hams really got a kick out of that. And maybe someday if I ever get to the one in Tokyo, I'll wear it there, too. Okay. So, the, so there are rare exceptions, but those are... Those are pretty special exceptions to the rule. That's there. right. Any other ham fest, you just see me with the ball cap. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been a while since we've talked about kits. We talked a little bit about uh, hamvention, and we'll, we'll maybe throw in a little bit on that here later. But uh, thanks for uh, coming back with another update. So one of the things you said you wanted to talk about tonight was ways to make kit building easier uh, there are some kits that are easy and some are, are more difficult so give us some some tips to make assembling go better and, and first i'm going to offer offer my favorite tip for kit building i don't think i've ever told you my my favorite tip for kit building and that is the styrofoam plate 
Yeah, I've I've seen people use that and they poke the parts into that and uh uh or sometimes they they draw lines on a plate and so forth and sort out the parts. It's a it's a good idea. Uh some people use egg cartons, uh which works too except for sea moss parts. You got to be kind of careful about those like mosfets and sea moss ICs. Um the two things that I use the most often are a cupcake tin, and I have them that are 6, 12, or 16 cups. And uh, depending on the size of the kit, some kits are very simple, and I can use a, a six-holer. And what I often do is through a one-meg resistor, I will ground that tin so that a CMOS part uh, does not have any static potential. And uh, uh, the other thing I use are trays out of a tackle box, and uh, uh, that way they're reclosable and the compartments are sizable uh, so I can change the size of them. And uh, what I like to do, uh, no matter what system I use, the cupcake tin or the uh, tackle box tray or sometimes for three bucks or so at, at Michael's or Hobby Lobby or Walmart, you can get these uh, jewelry sorting uh, storage things, and those work well as you know as for kit building. But what I do is I put the parts that I use the most often up in front, and that would be resistors and capacitors and stuff like that 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 you have the most numerous of. And then the things in the far back would be the nuts, bolts, screws, knobs, plugs, jacks, and connectors. Some things that you might use first, some that you might use last, but. Uh, the key to it is to make sure that uh, they're easy to get to and the parts fit okay in there without being bent over or something like that. Um, now, some kits are stage by stage, and those I sort a little differently, like if, if it has uh, sections of the kit where you're doing like a dozen parts at a time and so forth. Then I put all the parts for each section in one bin. And that way, when I'm done with that section, all those parts should be gone. So those are a couple of the hints. The other main hint I have is uh, the soldering iron is obviously the most important part of this. And I don't recommend uh, using your $4 to $10 pencil irons that are not variable temperature because they usually get too hot or not hot enough when dealing with certain kinds of connections. So what I really, really recommend is a thermostatically controlled uh, soldering iron so that you can set it at a temperature and as you're soldering, it draws the heat away. And the soldering iron will then boost up the power so that it keeps the same temperature. Then when you draw it away, instead of overheating the tip, they cool off and stay at the same temperature. You can clean the tip off and put it down for a while. Uh, the cheap irons uh, that you just plug in and they don't have any control at all, uh, they're not really well suited to kit building. Now, those are okay for soldering PL259s and things like that and splicing antenna wires. But for a kit building, I wouldn't recommend it. Most of those also have a tip that's way too big. Uh, I prefer to have a tip that's not too much bigger than the, the little circles on the board where you're soldering the pads. And solder, the same story. You don't want the solder to be too thick. 
And let me give you a hint. Uh, this is the sonder I use. Everybody says, well, Kester 6040 is the best. Well, yeah, it's great for PL259s and antennas and so forth. But when I'm working on a circuit board, my preference is 6337, and I use 031 or 025 thickness or even thinner sometimes. So the solder and the tip aren't any bigger than the pad on the board. Otherwise, uh, you might get blobs and, and shorts and so forth that makes life pretty difficult. But I use 6337 uh, rosin core, no clean. And that way you get a much cleaner connection. You don't get the brown blobs of flux that are left over. Instead, it's uh, whatever's left might be more clear. So... Uh, once again, my prescription for solder is 6337, rosin core, no clean, and 031 or smaller, uh, 025 is good. Now, you might say that's kind of thin, but it really does a good job, and you don't end up getting a lot of big blobs using that. Now, I'm going to stop you right there for a second because a question just suddenly came to mind. We got together and picked out some clock kits for my high schoolers to do as their first kit. And of course they had to, you know, put things in the wrong place. And so they had to try to, to get that extra solder out of there. And I gave them some choices of what I had. I had solder wick and I had uh, a one handed, um, handheld uh, spring-loaded vacuum um, and that was it so let me ask you while we're talking about getting blobs everywhere and if you use too big a solder and, and that kind of thing what do you like to do to take care of the oops well it depends on the board single-sided boards um, definitely solder wick works very quickly uh, Double-sided boards, it depends on the diameter of the holes because uh, those are plated through, and so it's more difficult. If the hole is plenty big and there's lots of gap between it and the wire, using solder wick works wonderful. Um, otherwise, the best tool, and, and it's something that you haven't mentioned yet, is a vacuum desoldering mm -hmm. tool. And actually, Radio Shack had one that was of the variety years ago that uh, would get extra hot. It was a regular pencil iron with a hollow tip and a suction ball. Um, and what you did was you squeezed the ball to blow the air out of it. Then you touched that iron with the hollow tip to the connection, and then you let go of the ball, and it sucked the solder up into the head. And then you had a an ashtray or something nearby that you could squirt the solder back out into to clear the head of the desoldering tool. And it was very effective about uh, cleaning the holes. But now they have electric ones. Uh, but they're kind of expensive. You're going to spend at least about $110, $120 for a... Uh, a vacuum desoldering tool. But that's only if you're going to do a lot. Uh, I would say um, uh, the wick is probably the best. And I'll give you another hint. Uh, if you're trying to steal parts off of circuit boards nowadays, a lot of them are made with lead-free solder. And you'll notice that it doesn't melt real quickly, does it? That is true. Well, there's a trick. And what I do is... I add some regular 6337 or even 6040 solder 
to that connection. I say, what are you trying to do? You're adding solder to something you're trying to desolder. But actually adding that solder to it does what? It lowers the melting mm -hmm. temperature to the lowest point. And then you take the wick and you draw it back and it comes off nice and clean. Um, so that's kind of uh, another hint. Now, back to the kind of solder. I, I like 6337 and I don't necessarily like the silver bearing type solder, just the 6337. We call that eutectic solder. And the reason is, is that particular mixture of solder melts at a slightly lower point than the 6040, but it has a much less plastic state. In other words, there's only a few degrees at which it could become crystalline if it got moved. And so for hand soldering things, uh, 6337 is much better. Now, the plastic state of solder, like I said, is where you get your cold solder joint. If something moves while it's cooling, but 6337 cools very quickly and solidifies uh, uh, much quicker and smoother. So uh, anywhere as you go where they're actually making electronic uh, products by hand, you're going to see the 6337. In fact, I, I have a customer that I visit to service printers right here in Lincoln, and all their benches have the 6337 rosin core or no clean, which kind of validates my point on the choice of solder. Sure, sure. Well, that uh, that little difference in the uh, mixture of the uh, the metals does uh, make a big, big difference in there. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a great tip. And, again, you know, the size of the tip and the size of the solder, you know, I, I <laughs> I think we've all had those moments when, okay, the only solder I can find at the moment is, <laughs> you know, a quarter inch thick. And okay, maybe not quite a quarter inch thick, but you know, it is this huge stuff. And then you're, you're thinking, well, okay, you know, that's that's what I've got at the moment. And you try it, and it just, it just turns into a disaster. Yeah, and I tell people that, that if they're building their first kit, if they start with the right solder and the right kind of iron, they're going to have more chance of success. And the the thing that I've always noticed is if somebody buys a kit and they fail building it, they're never going to try and build again. But if they build something, even something simple like your clock kit or a pixie or something like that, and it works – they're going to want to build something even more complex and so forth until they're they're building SDRs. Very good. Well, some great tips there um, for beginners that are uh, trying to build some of these kits. So uh, you, you have any others for us to, uh, to throw in there? Well, yes. Uh, a lot of times the instruction manuals that come with kits – uh, are not printed anymore. In fact, like if you order a kit from the Four States QRP group, those manuals are not printed. Uh, even MFJ and so forth, uh, uh, the bigger kit makers, a lot of them also supply the manuals as a PDF online or a Word doc, but usually PDF file. And the best way to handle that is to have a tablet nearby. 
and you can use the tablet to read your manual and then you can scroll through it. Of course, you can print it out. Now, when I'm working on a broken printer at work, my boss always tells me, do a 30 or 40 page you know, test to make sure it's good. And so that's a good chance to print a kit manual. And so <laughs> I take advantage of that. But, that's uh, a good way to do it. But yes, and it it you can print it yourself and kind of make your own little book. Or, like I said, if you use a tablet, now some people will pull out a little netbook or a laptop and do that. That's not a good idea. And the reason is is that when you're cutting wires from the leads when you're soldering a circuit board, those little leads go flying. And if one of those goes into your keyboard, well, you can kiss the laptop <laughs> goodbye. It'll end up on my bench at work as toast. So mm-hmm. um, I really... Uh, recommend using a tablet and a little cradle for the tablet and the reason is is that if those little leads go flying they're just going to bounce off the glass so uh, there's no problem with the tablet all right good stuff well uh tell us about it some of these new kits that are uh that are out that we haven't talked about yet well i'm going to talk about the cricket and the cricket is a really really fun kit and we did this uh as the uh uh, group build experience at OzarkCon. Now, OzarkCon, if you haven't heard about it, uh, I wrote about it in the June issue of CQ Magazine. Uh, OzarkCon is the annual gathering of the four-state QRP group, which is one of the largest nonprofit groups making kits today. And uh, they have several uh, people designing kits, but the uh, most uh, prolific designer lately has been David Kripe, NM0S. Now, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with him, he is a senior engineer at Rockwell Collins in Cedar Rapids. So he is a Collins radio engineer. And he has come up with some absolutely incredible kits. Now, the Cricket is a 80-meter CW transceiver. And it's kind of based loosely on the Pixie design, except for one thing. A Pixie receiver is almost pretty much deaf. This one has an MDS, which is minimum discernible signal, at about minus 110 dBm. That's pretty darn low. And in fact, when I built my kit, and put it together, I was able to hear the W1AW CW practice transmissions. And I I could copy it quite well. The signal was very comfortable. And then I unplugged the kit and I plugged my Elecraft KX2 into the same antenna. And guess what? It was only about an S2, S3 signal. So I thought, wow, that's pretty good considering I was listening to this 80-meter signal on a 40-meter dipole. And uh, with no tuner at all. And so with this, I was able to hear it quite well. So it proves out the MDS signal rating. Uh, This particular kit uses a 9-volt battery as a power supply. It has a jack so you can plug in a headset or earbuds. It has the key. The CW key is part of the kit and is on the main board. And it has a BNC jack. So... Uh, You really only have to plug in your antenna, your headset. It's already got the battery on it. Uh, Of course, when you plug in the battery, it turns it on. So you have to take the battery off to turn it off. Now, what's neat about this kit is there are three inductors on it. And these three inductors are made by a spiral etching on the circuit board. So you have a 
three inductors that are fixed. They're not going to vary at all. You're not going to wiggle them when they get hot or cold or anything like that. They're not going to vary at all. And you don't have to wind them. So you're not winding any toroids or any coils. Uh, you don't need any coil forms or anything. It is built onto the circuit board. So that's already done for you. That's a, a great audio amp for audio output. It's really loud in the headset. I added um, a three-pin, um, uh, it's kind of a machine pin socket thing that's uh, used on circuit boards and cutting the middle pin off. I made a uh, crystal jack so that I can substitute different crystals. But it comes with the crystal that we all know and love. And that is the color burst crystal, 3.579545 megahertz. And that is the old NTSC television color frequency. And so there's lots of crystals for that available. And that's kind of become a QRP kit hangout because uh, you don't hear the noise from the TV oscillators anymore because nobody has analog TVs anymore. So uh, the crystals are plentiful, and lots of hams are hanging out up there. All right. So that's the, the cricket, and, and, and I know you can't hear, but I'm playing crickets in the background for the, for the cricket. So. <laughs> well, the cricket, the cricket is uh, uh, offered by the four-state QRP group, which is 4sqrp.org. Now we're gonna we're actually gonna do a little retro here. We're gonna go back and we're gonna look at a couple of kits that I I like because they're classics. Okay, and these classics are put out by MFJ. Uh, one of them is under their Vectronics name. Now I don't know if you know anything about the history of MFJ, but bit. the very very first product that Martin Jew put out was a very simple SCAF-type CW audio filter, okay? Mm-hmm. And it had three bandwidths, 180 hertz, 110 hertz, and 80 hertz. And filters back then didn't go that narrow. Now, um, this design came up with four ICs in it and uh, seemed to work quite well. And so he had great success, and that's how MFJ became a success. The kit version of the actual original first product that MFJ ever made and still uses the same components is called the VEC-820. And the VEC-820 is available through MFJ. Um, You'll notice that if you look at the back panel, the input is two screw lug terminals. Don't forget that this was designed in the 70s. And so people would have a couple of wires coming out to their speaker. And then it has a full quarter-inch-sized mono headphone jack. So you can plug your headphones in or a speaker coming out the front. Um, It's a slide switch with uh, four positions. The far right is out, which also turns the kit off. And then as you move it to the left, it's 180 hertz, 110 hertz, and 80 hertz bandwidth. And I'm telling you, it is a very stable filter. And uh, if your receiver isn't stable, you'll know it when you're using this filter. And it really, really separates out the signals. Uh, Even a modern DSP uh, receiver sometimes has trouble narrowing down uh, audio 
uh, in a CW filter uh, to 80 hertz. And so amazingly, this kit, which was designed in the mid-70s as MFJ's first product, um, is still extremely useful. Now, obviously, you can customize it. You can change the plug to jacks and so forth. But uh, it's a absolutely wonderful kit, relatively low cost. In fact, you can buy it without the case and put it in your own box if you want. All right. Very good. And we need to uh, get to break here, but you've got one more? Yep, we sure do. All right. Go ahead and go ahead and do that one quickly, if you would. All right. Well, we're going to talk about the MFJ World Band Shortwave Radio. And this is another classic kit that's actually been around for at least 20 to 30 years. Uh, it's the MFJ 8100, and it is a single-sided board. Uh, the parts are spaced quite a ways apart, so it's easy to build for a first-time builder. The thing that it teaches you is that on a single-sided circuit board, uh, you do have to have jumper wires from time to time, and this one has four jumpers on it, but they come pretty much pre-cut, although some are a little long, so you can trim them. It has two headphone jacks, so you can listen along with a buddy. It runs on a 9-volt battery that clips to the main board and uh, hooks to the antenna and ground, and it is a regenerative general coverage shortwave receiver. And, uh, of course, it does favor the ham bands, and uh, uh, it's kind of an interesting lesson in one of the hints I like to give at my seminars, and that is have a reference receiver handy. Because when I put it together and I plugged it into the antenna, I could hardly hear anything at all. And I thought, oh, boy, I really messed up until I turned on my general coverage shortwave receiver that was next to it, hooked it to the same antenna, and didn't hear much either. Well, it turns out that the band was dead. So, And the bands uh, are never dead these days. Never. Oh, gosh, no. Gosh, no. no. So, so <laughs> conditions were pretty rugged, as as attested by my failure so far to get to GB13COL. Oh, I was I got... just getting ready to say the exact same thing. <laughs> I've got everything else, but I cannot hear GB13COL yeah. to save me. Yeah, if I could hear him, I'd be all right. But uh, the guys on the East Coast got lucky, but us in the Midwest are, are kind of handicapped this time with the band conditions. But this receiver here, I had it on 80 meters last night, and it worked just wonderful. So if you wait a couple days or a day or so or even a few hours, try it again. The conditions might be a lot different, and in fact, they were. And so I was listening to Radio Havana, Cuba, and WTWW, and WWCR on shortwave, and hearing WWV, and all the other signals that make shortwave the bands that we know and love. Uh, it is a regenerative receiver, so of course you got to learn how to tweak the regeneration control. And uh, the uh, antenna and ground connections are as easy as they get. It comes with the case and a separate front panel that gets bolted on and uh, absolutely looks professional when it's done. I, I finished it up last weekend and uh, wrote about it for the magazine because I like writing about these classic kits. These kits have been around 20, 30 years or more, and they obviously are around that long for a reason because they work. And uh, this one has a vernier uh, tuning capacitor. So uh, that's kind of uh, unique. A lot of kits nowadays that have a regen receiver just use a tuning capacitor that's not geared. There is one toroid to wind in this one, uh, but don't be afraid of it. The wire comes uh, 
already cut and trimmed, although I did need to shorten mine a bit when I soldered it to the board. Uh, it's an eight-turn toroid, and instead of using enameled wire, which is kind of hard for a first-time kit builder, it uses just regular insulated wire. And uh, the wire is already tinned and everything, and absolutely goes together very easily. If this was the first toroid a kit builder would wind, uh, I'd say that would get you started on, on not being afraid of winding toroids. All right, very good. So that's coming up in CQ Magazine. Look for K0NEB's kit building column there. And uh, we'll be back and give you a chance to call in and ask your questions right after this from Tower Electronics right here on Ham Talk Live. This episode of Ham Talk Live is brought to you in part by Tower Electronics. Tower Electronics has been the Ham's Dime Store since 1978. When you need connectors, mobile and handheld antennas, cables, or adapters, visit Scott or Jill at a HamFest near you. Or you can order online at pl-259.com or call 920-435-2973. Stock up on those supplies like PL-259 and end connectors, SMA adapters, audio cables, soldering supplies, mobile antennas, and ham sticks. Their silver-plated end connectors are even used on the International Space Station. Tower Electronics carries MFJ, Comet, Daiwa, OPEC, Workman, and Hampro products. And don't miss their 0% off sale going on now. Tower Electronics online at pl-259.com. Proud to sponsor this episode of Ham Talk Live. Your QTH or mine? You're listening to Ham Talk Live with Neil Rapp. Join the conversation. Call us on voice with Skype at Ham Talk Live or give us a call at 812 Net Ham 1. That's 812 638 4261. Now, here's more Ham Talk Live. Thanks again to Scott and Jill at Tower Electronics for sponsoring the show once again. And uh, they'll be at the Oak Creek, Wisconsin Ham Fest on Saturday. And then they're going to take a little break, spend some time with some family, and then they'll be back on the HamFest circuit in August. But you can always give them a call. It's 920-435-2973 or pl-259.com. So make sure you check that out. And I know Joe loves to get his parts from them. Yes, I do. In fact, uh, one of the hints I like to give kit builders is to always have the right plugs, jacks, and connectors handy so that you can make your connections to your kits. And Scott and Jill from Tower Electronics has the greatest selection of plugs, jacks, and connectors and adapters and so forth that that I ever see. And so they always know they're going to get a visit from me every ham fest I see them. And, uh, in fact, one of the pictures we uh, sent out on Twitter and Facebook uh, and, and Instagram uh, promoting the show tonight is uh, you at the Tower Electronics booth. So <laughs> we got a picture of, uh, of all the connectors and plugs and everything. So uh, we'll thank Scott for, uh, for using the picture. Well, let's take some calls here. We, we kind of skipped over a bunch of stuff here. We, we can talk all night, but... Uh, let's take some calls here. The number is 812-NET-HAM-1. 
812-638-4261. Or you can Skype us. Uh, we're Ham Talk Live on Skype, and we're also Ham Talk Live on Twitter. So if you'd rather uh, tweet to us, uh, you can most certainly do that. In fact, let me check. Yep, we'll check the, the tweets here. Um, so if you have a kit building question or a uh, question about one of these kits that uh, Joe's talked about or, or some other kit, well, give us a call. It's 812-638-4261. That spells NetHam1. And uh, we'll get you in here. Okay. And uh, Jill says we may be, Jill's listening and, and says maybe breaking up a little bit. And, and I, I heard a little bit of, of stuff on, on your side too, Joe. So I'm not sure what's up with the internet tonight, but we'll keep trying to, to go through it. And um, while we're waiting on the calls to come in, again, 812-NET-HAM-1, 812-638-4261. Uh, great job on the picture shows. Yeah, the the good news on my internet service is that about six blocks away, they're starting to trench for fiber. And once I get that, I'll have a gigabit oh, up and yeah. down, and that's going to be wonderful. But uh, be the slideshows, I've been doing photos at Hamvention since my very first trip in 1975 when I was armed with an 8-millimeter movie camera and uh, a Kodak Instamatic. And we've gone from there. And now, of course, obviously, high-resolution digital photography. And what I do, because I, I make a lot of presentations to local clubs and ham fests around here about Dayton, is I make it more entertaining than sitting there and putting up a picture and talking for 20 minutes. What I do is I have these slideshows that run about four minutes, and they're set carefully to music. And the photos go with the words of the song. And they try to follow a theme somewhat related to the theme of the song. Like I have one uh, that uses the song Freeze Frame. And, of course, the theme of that slideshow is photography. So you see a lot of people with cameras taking pictures just like I do. Um, Girls Just Want to Have Fun is obviously about women in amateur radio. Uh, this year's theme was the new Location And so I use Sticks the Grand Illusion, which actually came out even a lot better than I thought it would. And, and it starts out with the opening ceremonies with the Honor Guard from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And uh, we go from there and we show all that was wonderful about Hamvention. Then, of course, I made another one called The Show Must Go On, which showed the, the mud and, and the other interesting things that made going to the Greene County Fairgrounds a lot different than the experience we had at Hare Arena. And uh, I'm really, really looking forward to the improvements in the future. But to, to let people know, uh, to make a typical slideshow, I probably shoot 400 to 500 or more photos of which a handful get into these slideshows. And I throw pictures at you uh, every four or five seconds. And so uh, those images kind of get etched into people's minds by locking them in with the the words to the songs. In fact, I have a lot of people that come up to me when I show up at Dayton saying, what song are you going to destroy this year? And I say, <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I first heard that, I thought, well, that's an awful thing to say. And they said, well... It's because every time I hear that song on the radio, those pictures 
come into my mind and I, it reminds me, I really want to go to Hamvention. I said, well, then that means I'm really doing my job. And that is as kind of the official photographer for the Dayton Hamvention. All right. 812-638-4261 is the number. And Dr. Scott Wright tells me that I'm breaking up and, and you're not, which you're going through here. So I'm not sure what's going on, but uh, what we'll do is uh, after uh, the live broadcast, we'll, uh, we'll upload the local version, so hopefully that'll, that'll clean all that up. So, uh, 812, net ham one is the number. We just have a couple of minutes left if you'd like to uh, get a question in here for Joe about uh, some of the kit building stuff. And and, and I know Jill's listening, and, and, and we, we did a little research here uh, on Monday, and we, and we found the cheesecake on a stick people and we're trying to get them back to hamvention we're trying to get that all worked out so uh we've been tracking down who did what and and so we'll have some more news um running out of time to talk about it tonight but uh but we're, we're working on it i found it so well that's great uh we, we i know that was one of the uh, that was one of the Hamfest traditional treats that a lot of people were asking about this year, and um, I, I still don't have any complaints about the food at uh, Xenia because uh, it was obviously there was a lot of fair food, but it wasn't your cotton candy as much as it was really good stuff, oh, and. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think that they did a great job. I think uh, they're already talking about having a uh, a food tent for people to uh, eat under cover uh, because, as we saw, it does rain from time to time. And uh, um, there's going to be even more food vendors because the food vendors there were doing great business. But the problem was is that they were doing such a great business that it took a long time to uh, – get through the lines so i i am really looking forward to even more food vendors uh none of the vendors that were there this year were disappointed at all in the business that they did in fact most said that it was much busier than the county fair oh i'm sure i'm sure and um, yeah i thought it, was, thought it went, uh, went pretty well but yeah the lines were long uh for, for uh some items especially so that'll be uh That'll be interesting. Now, while we're talking about Dayton, and I know this isn't going to do it justice with a minute and a half, uh, but uh, how, how did FDIM go? FDIM went great. Of course, it was at the same location it has been for several years at the Holiday Inn in Beaver Creek. So it was uh, fortuitous for them that Hamvention moved to Xenia because it cut in half the amount of time it took them to get to the Hamfest instead of going clear across town to Hare Arena. And uh, it went really well. And we made a kit that was the, um, it was a crystal tester. And uh, uh, it, it is basically a crystal oscillator with a frequency counter on it, and you could touch a crystal to the two pads, and it would tell you exactly what frequency that crystal was on. And uh, he sent out calibrated crystals to each person that were exactly counted so that afterwards at home, you could touch that crystal to it, adjust the trimmer cap so that it shows that exact frequency, and now it's exactly calibrated. And uh, I've been using mine quite a bit for checking crystals to make sure they're working. All right. Very good. Well, we are just about out of time, but Carl, Katie, Dine, HQT, uh, 
want to know if you've used uh, Heathkit, and and I know the answer to this is yes, uh, to assemble transceivers and audio analyzers. And unfortunately, we're we're going to have to we're going to have to cut it off there because uh, we are out of time. But I, I'd say that the answer is is yes. Yes, yes. Many years ago, I certainly did. <laughs> Yeah, and Heathkit always had the best instructions of anybody, I think. Absolutely, and, uh, by far. Elecraft yeah. now does, too, as Very well as good. DZ Kit. DZ Kit does as well. Very good. Well, that's a wrap for another edition of Ham Talk Live. Thanks again to Joe Eisenberg, K0NEB, and everyone out there in cyberspace for listening. And uh chatting online tonight and we'll invite you all back next thursday night at 9 p.m eastern time we've got several guests lined up uh for the next uh month or so but we're kind of juggling the dates around so i don't have exactly who's going to be uh at which uh date yet uh but you can check that out uh the latest uh revision of the schedule is uh, on the link at hamtalklive.com. Just click on the show schedule link. So for now, this is Neil Rapp, WB9VPG, saying 7375, and may the good DX be yours.